We are in a message series called Theology Untangled, as you could see the graphic out in front of you here. The idea of this series of messages was to take from all of you any question that you might have concerning theology, concerning the Bible, uh, concerning anything really, because we believe that the Bible has answers to every part and portion of life. And so we have already dealt with membership, that was last week, and then the week prior we dealt with God's will. Does God have more than one will? And if God's will is always done, then do we have such a thing as free choice? Well, tonight's question that we are going to seek to answer is about the five points of Calvinism. And here's the question. Are the five points of Calvinism biblical? Are the five points of Calvinism biblical? Now, some of you are like, there's no way you could answer that in in one 45-minute session. And I would say, you're right. So we're going to do it in two. All right, we're going to take tonight to give you a, well, not a thorough, a decent history of where the five points of Calvinism came from. And we will attack the first of the five, which is total depravity. All right, so here's how we're going to answer this question. Are the five points of Calvinism biblical? Part one. We're going to seek to answer that by four questions. One, what are the five points of Calvinism? Two, what is the history of the five points of Calvinism? Three, Does the Bible teach total depravity? And four, how does total depravity relate to the gospel? So let's start with what are the five points of Calvinism? The five points of Calvinism are almost always in an acronym form, and that acronym is TULIP. T-U-L-I-P. Helpful for memory, total depravity, Unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and the perseverance of the saints. There is the five points of Calvinism. Now, what we're dealing with is not in total Calvinism here. Okay, we're dealing with rather Calvin's view of salvation or in theological terms, soteriology, the theology behind how we are saved. If you want to get Calvinism in full, you need to pick up the Institutes of the Christian Religion, or you need to read the Westminster Confession of Faith, or you could get his massive volumes of commentaries, which are many, 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 many volumes of commentaries. If you want a full-orbed Calvinism, you will need those three. You can't get it from the tulip. But what you can get from the tulip is a basic summary of what the Bible teaches about salvation. What the Bible teaches about salvation. So some of you uh, hear the name John Calvin, and we don't often throw around Calvin in this church, though I think he's a hero. Calvin is a hero of mine. Okay? We don't throw his name around in Eternal City because we don't know what you have heard about John Calvin. Like some of you have heard he's a murderer because of Michael Servetus. Some of you have heard that he, is, he just hates people and wants all people to be condemned to hell. Right? And so when I, if I was to just throw out Calvin without a thorough explanation, um, some of you would immediately turn me off. And so for that purpose, you know, John, John Calvin's one of those characters in history. You either love him or you hate him. And so in, in a quick one-off It's not helpful, I think, to use such a name that carries so much baggage and so much weight at the same time. So what we're going to do right now is we're going to talk about what is the history of the five points of Calvinism. So we just answered question one. What are the five points? There they are. Total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, perseverance of the saints. We will take each one of those and biblically unpack it. But for now, I think you need a little bit of the history. So first, how did the tulip come to be? Well, I think you have to start with one of the, if not the, greatest church fathers, St. Augustine. Okay, Augustine was late 300s, um, early 400s, and he was North African. 
Okay? And he is the theologian that John Calvin quotes more than any other theologian. So you could say that St. Augustine had more influence on John Calvin than anyone else outside of the Bible. Clearly, from his quotes, he did. Also, the German monk of the Reformation, who we'll see in a moment, was an Augustinian monk. He studied Augustine writings, and he was himself Augustinian. Well, if you know anything about St. Augustine, who, interestingly, the Catholics hold as a hero— the Roman Catholics, and Protestants hold as a hero, especially Reformed Protestants. We say, yes, Augustine is my homie. Yes, amen to Augustine. We say, I am Augustinian. I am Augustinian, okay? I I may be Augustinian before I'm Calvinistic because Augustine precedes Calvin. Well, Augustine wrote the Confessions, and it was a literary masterpiece of his autobiography in confession form to God. How many of you have read the Confessions? Whoa, two of you. That's bad. You guys need to read the Confessions. It's an audio form. You could listen to it while you do your dishes and do your laundry. Okay, commit. Every time I do the dishes, every time I do the laundry, I'm going to listen to the Confessions and I'm going to get them done. So he is confessing and biographically giving us his life. And this is the prayer that Augustine prayed in the Confessions that sparked so much controversy, and what we could say is the roots of the tulip. Grant what thou commandest, and then command what thou wilt. Now, that was written in Latin and translated into Old English, so we could say it like this, and it'd still be fair. Grant what you command, and command what you want. That's what Augustine prayed. So so you give us the grace, give us the ability to do whatever you command, and command whatever you want, God. Now, that, that prayer set a British theologian on his head. His name was Pelagius. How many of you have heard of Pelagius? Yeah, the, the, the theologian. He was a theologian, even if he was a bad one. He was still a theologian. And the British monk, Pelagius, late 4th, uh, early 5th century, taught that Adam's sin affected Adam only. It was an isolated incident. In other words, Adam's sin had no effect on you or me. We were all born in a state of innocence and sinlessness. And then we choose the route of sin, but we have the possibility to not choose the route of sin. And this is what Pelagius taught. Uh, Pelagius was not opposed to grace, Grace means undeserved, unearned favor, help from God. You need God's ability to do what God wants you to do. This is the very thing Augustine was praying. Give what you command. Give me the ability to do what you're asking me to do, God. That's grace. Pelagius thought that we could achieve God's standards without his grace. This is what he taught and believed. He was basically a humanist. Okay, grace was not necessary for salvation. Pelagius taught that you could achieve a right standing with God by your own efforts, by your own energy, and it's theoretically possible that you don't need the cross of Christ because you don't have sins that need paid for. Now, some of this is already sounding like heresy to you, and Pelagius was condemned as a heretic. Well, good thing, right? That's a great thing. We should not follow him, Okay. In 418, the Council of Carthage, which is North Africa, condemned the teachings of Pelagius, and he still remains a heretic, okay? Even though, you know, there's semi-Pelagian, and then there's semi-semi-Pelagian, and we won't get down to all those streams. Talk to Pete if you want to know about that stuff, okay? Pete loves to talk about that. So what happened in 1517 that we are still reckoning with 500 years later? This guy, you like that haircut? I'm thinking about going that way, my next haircut. That is the German monk, Martin Luther. And this is a picture of the Wittenberg Church Castle door in 1517, October 31st. Okay, And he is nailing the 95 theses to the Castle Church door. Uh, Some scholars think that, no, he didn't nail it, he pasted it. That's what 
historians like to do. They like to argue over dumb details like, did he hammer it or did he paste it to the door? Someone's wrong. It doesn't matter. What he did was he put a protest on the door, which was a way of publicly trying to get a debate started. Okay, so, so it wasn't just a random act. Why would you post a 95 theses on a door? Well, it was the way that you would spark debate. It was the way that you would challenge the status quo. It was the way that the universities would put out their ideas. It was like publishing. Okay, this is right around the time of the printing press, and the printing press was so new that you couldn't publish through printing yet, though Luther was at the very beginning stages of the Gutenberg press, which his tracks did get pressed by ink and distributed. And so what happened here was Luther was basically upset that the Catholic Church was not only scheming people, but teaching people that by their paying of money, they could have their relatives' time in purgatory lessened. Okay? Tetzel was the, the main preacher of indulgences, and his, his common little jingle was, when a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. Okay? And, and so he would go from town to town collecting money for the building of St. Peter's. And he was scamming people out of their money and giving them a certificate of indulgence. And that was either for their relative or for themselves or for their spouse or for their kids. And it would lessen your time in purgatory. Now, we don't believe in purgatory if you're biblical because there is no such thing as purgatory. But the, the, the Catholic Church in the 1500s, everyone believed purgatory was real and everybody was headed to purgatory. And you had to work off your sin debt and be perfected and cleansed until you were righteous enough to enter into God's actual presence. And maybe it was thousands of years. Maybe it was millions of years. And so in the church mass was all done in Latin and most people did not speak Latin. And so they would go to church, they would go through the mass and they had no idea what was even being taught or done. But they were taught that if you would give some money for indulgences, you can lessen your time in hell. And so it was a great scheme that was making a lot of money, and Luther was not happy about it. And so he posted the 95 theses, one against indulgences, but two about the gospel, and three about repentance. And you can read the 95 theses for yourself. On October 31st, 1517, Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses to the castle church door in Wittenberg, Germany. And literally that event, all historians will point to and say, this was what caught fire to Europe and sparked what we know as the Reformation, a returning to the gospel when it was once lost. Well, one of those uh, men who also came to be recognized was John Calvin, a contemporary of Martin Luther. And he lived from 1509 to 1564. John Calvin was French. However, most everybody knows his ministry from Geneva, Switzerland. Hey, we even have a college named Geneva College after him. You can go there, thoroughly Calvinistic, and you'll probably only sing the Psalms if you go there, because that's what Calvin taught you should do, which is why I'm not fully Calvinist. Clearly. Uh, however, John Calvin was basically a Bible teacher. And we will get to the Bible. Yes, we will. Give me a moment, okay? John Calvin was a Bible teacher. And John Calvin, if he was here right now, he'd be like, let's get into the Bible. Why are you talking about all this history stuff, man? Let's go. But John Calvin literally would open up the Greek and Hebrew text and he would preach no notes straight from the Greek and Hebrew. And he would go verse by verse by verse by verse through the Bible. And when he taught on the texts that speak about salvation, he taught them clearly and accurately, which most people only know him from these teachings, which are teachings on predestination, which the Bible clearly teaches. So why does John Calvin only get the predestination label? I think maybe because it's one of the most controversial of his teachings. But all John basically did was teach verse by verse by verse by verse through the Bible. And hundreds and thousands of people flocked uh, over time to hear his teachings. And in addition, he trained many, many, many church planting pastors and sent them out of Geneva to plant reformed churches all over uh, the world. 
One of John Calvin's um, assistants and later successor was Theodore Beza. Theodore Beza. Yeah, Theo, I know that's where you got your name from. Who would have thought? Theodore Beza. Uh, And interestingly, here's the connection, okay? There was a student of Theodore Beza named Jacob Arminius. Jacob Arminius. Here he is. Great looking dude. And, and as a, that collar, man, I got to get one of them. As, as I was making these slides, my daughter, as she likes to do, was kind of hanging on my back like a backpack and so I'm all twisted and like making notes. And, and at this point, she's like, why are all these priests white? <laughs> now, now, I think that she meant priests because of the weird collar. And basically what I told her was something like this. Well, we're dealing with the, the European Reformation, which then spread to other lands, and especially the English-speaking world. And if we were doing like the church history of Africa, they would look different. But, but there's your answer. That's why <laughs> these are all white guys. So Jacob Arminius was under Beza, who was under Calvin. And Jacob Arminius was a Calvinist. He, he, he agreed with Calvin. He was a preacher of Calvinistic uh, theology. He loved the Institutes. Well, in the course of him teaching, he was assigned uh, at one point to defend Calvin's teaching on predestination. And as he began to study it, he began to disagree with Calvin's view of predestination. And so what happened was he began to teach contrary to Calvin's view of predestination, or we could say he began to preach unbiblically. Yes, I'll go there. That's what he did. He began to preach unbiblically. Now, Arminius, uh, who studied under Beza, changed his mind, uh, diverted from Augustine's view of salvation, and he then gained a large following. He gained a large following. Now, This takes us to the Synod of Dort. Synod is such a weird word. It just means gathering of people, okay? That's all it means, a council, a gathering. Dort is Dortrecht, and that is in the Netherlands, okay? The Dutch Netherlands. This synod, this gathering uh, for theological purposes, which the church and state were all tied together at this time, and so to, to separate church and state is something that we know about. They didn't know anything about that. So this is also connected to, to the government here. This happened uh, for two years between 1618 and 1619. The reason the synod of Dort was called was because the Arminians, those who followed Arminius' teachings, we're trying to get legal uh, teaching and legal, basically, we, the government, agree with Arminians' views. They were trying to get it popularized and legalized. And so they held the Senate of Dort to discuss this matter. Now, I'm going to read this paragraph for you. Okay, this is uh, from P- Puritan Reform Seminary, and I can send you this link if you'd like. But I think this helpfully summarizes, okay? Here's where we are getting into the five points. Are you ready? Synod of Dort, which meant met in the city of Dortrecht in the Netherlands. The Synod of Dort was held in order to settle a serious controversy in the Dutch churches initiated by the rise of Arminianism. Remember, the followers of the teachings of Jacob Arminius. Jacob Arminius a theological professor at Leiden University, departed from the Reformed faith on a number of important points. After Arminius' death, 43 of his ministerial followers drafted and presented their heretical views to the state general of the Netherlands. Now, the reason it says heretical was because they were condemned as heresy. That's not an opinion. That's history. Fact heretical views to the state general of the Netherlands on five of these points in the remonstrance of 1610. Remonstrance literally means protests. So the Arminians came up with five protests that they wanted recognized by the government. And I'll read on. In this document, and even more explicitly, that means clearly, in later writings, the Arminians who came to be called the remonstrance taught Point one, election based on foreseen faith. Okay, so their first point was God predestines. I don't care who you are. If you read the Bible, you will come across predestination. Okay, Ephesians 1, 
In love, God predestined us according to his own purposes, Ephesians 1.11. And you can read on and on. Predestination's all through the Bible. The question is not, do you believe in predestination? If you believe the Bible, you have to. The question is, how, what was the means that God predestined? This first point is that predestination or election was based on foreseen faith. Here's what that looks like. God, because he's outside of time and space, could look into eternity future, see all those who would believe, and then on the basis of their belief, he then chooses them. But this all happens before the foundation of the world. This is point number one. Point number two. The universal merits of Christ, meaning that what Jesus accomplished, he accomplished unqualified for all people. Jesus' atonement applies to everyone. That's what that means, point number two. Point number three, free will of man due to only partial depravity. Here's our point tonight. Okay, partial depravity means that we were only injured or made sick. We were fallen in the fall, but we were not totally subject to corruption. And our will is still free enough with God's, what we'll call prevenient grace, that's, that's what Arminians said, uh, we can then choose God based on our own free will, okay? Five, the possibility of a lapse from grace, meaning you could be in God's grace saved, and then you could fall away and lose your salvation. So those are the five points that the followers of Arminius put forward to be legalized, to be recognized by the state in the church. So, no, I did five. I only did four. Did I miss one? Oh, four. The, the resistibility of grace. Thank you for that, because I would have just moved right past that. The resistibility of grace is number four. In other words, if God is moving on you in his grace, you can stiff-arm that grace. God can be stiff-armed. Okay, that's what that means. All right, there's the five points. The possibility of a lapse from grace. They, des they desired the Reformed Church's doctrinal standards to be revised and their own minority views to be protected by the government. The Arminian-Calvinist conflict became so severe that it led the Netherlands to the brink of civil war. You're like, really? Civil war over that? Yes. <laughs> Finally, in 1617, the states general voted four to three to call a national synod to address Arminianism. The synod, synod held 154 formal sessions over a period of seven months from November 1618 to May 1619. Can you imagine that? 154 meetings over this? And you're like, it's not that serious. Well, to them it was. And it just shows how little we care about theology and how little we care about what the Bible actually teaches. Because we're like, that was a massive colossal waste of time. They didn't think so. And you're living off of their heritage. Okay, so if you want this whole document, it also has all the articles. It also has all of their rejections. In fact, what came out of this was called the Canons of Dort. Canons of Dort. Not what you shoot cannonballs out of, but rather canons as in measuring rule standard. Okay, we talk about the canon of the scripture. The 66 books is the canon. It's the rule. It's the law. It's the, the measuring stick. Okay, so the Canons of Dort came out of this synod. And they have uh, a bunch of articles and a bunch of what are rejections surrounding biblical teachings on salvation. So the whole Synod of Dort basically revolved around how is one saved? The whole thing. And you can find all kinds of stuff online. You don't even need to buy a book, though if you want books, I can recommend them to you. All right, now let's move on. <clears throat> Back to total depravity. So the, the five points of Calvinism were a direct response to the five points of Arminianism, which the Senate of Dort put forth as a response to the remonstrance. Does that make sense? Is everyone with me? All right, good, excellent. So in other words, the Calvinists didn't come up with the tulip. The Calvinists didn't come up with the five points of Calvinism. It was a response to the assault of what was common orthodoxy at the time. 
John Calvin didn't put forth the tulip. In fact, it's in English. And Calvin didn't speak English. And those in the Dutch Netherlands at the Senate of Dort did not speak English either. So where did the tulip come from? Well, history tells us that in 1913 is the first documented record of the acronym TULIP. It's in Ken Stewart's book, 10 Myths About Calvinism. 1913 is the first time that this little acronym appeared. Okay, so now we're done with the history. I know that was a short history. All you historians are upset at me for not going deep enough. I hope that those of you who thought I went too deep are not too bored. And now let's move on to what the Bible actually teaches about the T, total depravity. Next week, we will talk about uh, ULIP, ULIP. All right, so let's do total depravity. What does total depravity actually mean? Well, it sounds worse than what it biblically means, okay? What it does not mean is that every human being is as bad as they could possibly be. Clearly, that's not what it means. What it does mean is that every single part of the human being is affected by the fall. Mind, emotions, will, body, The human being, every human being in totality has been affected by the fall. Corruption or depravity has crept in and has not left any part of the human being untouched. That's what total depravity teaches. And now we have to ask the question, is that what the Bible teaches? Well, Let's go through some texts. Now, those of you who are are theologians in the room, you understand that it is not possible in a sermon to bring every text to bear on total depravity. We would be here for weeks just doing total depravity. Okay, that's saying something to the validity of it. But we will go through some of the relevant ones. So let's do it. This is right before God floods the entire earth as a judgment. Like we think of Noah's Ark as cute nursery art. Meanwhile, Every human being, man, woman, and child, except for eight people, died tragically in a flood. Although it wasn't just a tragedy, it was God's judgment. Why? Well, here it is. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. I mean, that's a bad diagnosis. Look at that. Every intention, every intention, every, of the thoughts of his heart, every thought, every thought was only evil, only evil continually. That's a bad diagnosis. And for that diagnosis, God says, I'm going to wipe you all out. And God did not do any injustice to anyone. And you know who he showed mercy and grace to? Noah, his three sons, and their wives. They got grace. And if they would have got justice, they would have drowned too. And in fact, that's what the text says. Noah found favor in God's eyes. Favor, grace. So it's not like Noah and his three sons and their wives were not totally depraved too. They were too. It's just that God graciously saved them. And through Noah, preached the wrath to come and preached a repentance to escape the wrath, and no one listened. And we don't have time to go on. However, a future message is coming in which we're going to discuss uh, the, the Genesis dilemma. Even the Nephilim will be in there. You'll like it. All right, so that's coming. Psalm 51 is one of the greatest places we could see this. Now, Psalm 51 was David's confession of repentance after Nathan the prophet had confronted him for the sin with Bathsheba and the sin with murdering Bathsheba's husband, Uriah. And so Nathan comes in with that brilliant story about the sheep and the one man who had many sheep stole the poor man's sheep, what was just one which he kept as a pet and snuggled and held it and cuddled it. And the rich man took that one and, and, and murdered it. And so David gets outraged because he was a shepherd and he understands that you should care for the sheep and how dare this rich man. And Nathan points his finger in his face and says, you're the man, David, you. And Nathan just, or David crumbles under the guilt. He knows it's him. And rather than destroying Nathan for bringing the judgment, 
He is distraught himself. And he writes Psalm 51. It's his psalm of repentance. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy. Look at that. Mercy. Love. Blot out my transgressions. He's confessing his sin. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. That is a great two verses for you to quote when you're praying. Fantastic. You need those two verses. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. It's always right here in front of my eyes like I'm looking out glasses and the lens is my sin. Against you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Look at verse 5. Ready? Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me the niv translates that this way i was sinful at birth sinful from the time my mother conceived me what yes this points to what happened in genesis 3 when Adam and Eve transgressed the command of God to not eat the forbidden fruit, when they ate it, they became corrupt. And when they had children, they passed that sin nature or original sin or corruption or depravity on to every one of their children. And if you don't think so, what is the next episode after the fall in Genesis? Cain kills Abel. You have the murder, sibling murder, and cover-up, and denial. And then we don't have to move far until the whole world is so corrupt that God has to kill everyone. Two chapters later. And, and interestingly, Noah and his wife are now, if you will, the new Adam and Eve, right? Because it's their sons. And the whole world gets populated again, and we're right back to where we were in Genesis 6 before the flood. Why is that? Because the sin nature is passed from every conception. Every baby is born a sinner. And as it's been said, I think it's helpful. We're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. The actual sins are symptoms of a deeper virus called total depravity. Just like when you have a, a virus, you might cough or throw up or other bad things might happen. Okay? When you sin in word, thought, or deed, you are merely portraying symptoms of a deeper problem, your depravity. And verse 5 is one of those verses that show it. Here's some more. Isaiah 53, 6, this is the, the text about the Lord's servant, the Messiah, but look at this. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. Now, I think this is specific to those whom the shepherd of the sheep died for, but let's just use us as an example. All Christians, all those who are under the shepherd's care, all we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, Jesus, the iniquity of us all, all who are in Christ. Luke 11, 11 to 13, this is Jesus, and here's his view of human beings. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead give him a serpent? Daddy, daddy, can I have some fish? Yeah, here's a poisonous viper, son. Like no, no sane father would do that. Or if he asks for an egg, we'll give him a scorpion. Daddy, daddy, can I have an egg here? Sure, here's a poisonous scorpion. If you then, who are evil, look at that qualifier. He didn't have to say that. Jesus, why are you dissing us? No, he, he is simply giving us the straight-up, raw, uncut diagnosis. If you're evil, if you're evil and you know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Now, 
In John chapter 1, we learn that Jesus, uh, I'm sorry, it's not John chapter 1, it's within the first couple chapters. Jesus did not entrust himself to the crowds, for he knew what was in man. What did he know that was in man? Well, they were depraved. And that they are, they vassal, they, they vacillate. They, they're like waves of the sea back and forth. They're like dried up leaves in the wind. They blow one way, and then when the wind blows, they blow the other way. So in one moment, they're saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then the next moment, the crowd is saying, crucify him, crucify him. Jesus knew what was in man. And here, what is it? He says, we're evil. We're evil. Now, this is the most clear place in the whole Bible where you can see total depravity. And what you need to know about Romans 3, 9 to 18, is that it's simply quoting the Psalms and Isaiah and other Old Testament texts. Paul, who wrote the letter to the Romans, is condemning both Jew and Gentile, Jewish ethnicity, and then all other ethnicities are Gentile. And he's saying, you're all, all under sin. Or totally depraved. What then? Are Jews better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, you could translate that Gentiles, are under sin. Under sin means what we mean by total depravity. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. Not even one? No, not one. No righteous people. No one understands. No one? No one. No one seeks after God. Wait a minute. No one seeks after God? Not the true God. Not the true God as he declares himself to be, as he truly is. Sure, we'll go after all kind of idols. We love idols, but not the true God. You need a miracle to seek after the true God. They have all, look at verse 12, all have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. Notice that together. No one does good, not even one. Not even one person does good? No, not one. Their throat is an open grave. Now, if your throat is an open grave, what does that mean to the inside of you? Dead. We'll get there in just a minute. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps, that's a poisonous snake. Some translations say vipers, is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That's a a stinging charge against humanity right there. But that's the truth. That's you That's me, that's every single person born under a male conception. Ephesians 2, 1 to 4. Paul, writing to the church at Ephesus, declares to them and by extension to us, wow, I just got louder by fixing that, and you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all, all once walked or lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature, nature, who you are at the core, by nature, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Now, the Bible could use any imagery to show our condition, right? At this point, Paul could have said, it's like you're taking your last breath and you need revived and you need, you're right on the edge of death. Don't you see that you're about to fall off the cliff? No, rather, he says, you're already in the coffin. You're already dead. Who? Who are you talking to, Paul? Everyone. Even you, Christians, you were once dead in your trespasses and sins. Now, the dead imagery, I think, is clear. You are dead to God, dead to righteousness, dead to the things of God, but very much alive to sin, to unrighteousness, and look, to Satan. Where do you get Satan from? Well, I get that from verse 2. Following the prince of the power of the air. Who's that? The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. What are you saying? I'm a son of disobedience? 
among whom we all lived in the passions of our flesh, our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. We were by nature children of wrath. Whose wrath? God's wrath. What incurs God's wrath? Disobedience, rebellion, and transgression against his moral law. And so if everyone by nature is an object of wrath, it means everyone has transgressed his law and has rebelled against him. That's what that means. Now, this is the clear teaching of Scripture, that every single person born after Adam has inherited the sin nature of Adam, and by that nature, they are in opposition to God. In fact, Romans 8 says, we are hostile to God, and we cannot obey his law. And we cannot because we will not. We refuse. Now, here's the distinction I want you to make. Some of you are imagining right now that, wait, so I have no choice in the matter? You do. John 3, 19 to 21, look at this. This is either Jesus speaking to Nicodemus or this is the writer of the epistle, John, commenting right after the conversation with Jesus and Nicodemus. We don't know. It's hard to tell. And this is the judgment. Light has come into the world, and light is Jesus. When you read the first chapter of John, uh, Jesus is the light who has come into the darkness. Okay, He is all through the gospel of John. Jesus is the light. Light has come into the world, and people loved darkness rather than the light. Why? Because their works were evil. If you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light. Why? Lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. You could say by God. Okay, now what's being said here is this. If God is light and Jesus is the light, people have a love affair with darkness, which keeps them from coming to the light, which is God. Why would they not want to come to the light? Because they love their sin so much. And if it exposed their sin and they were forced to give it up, they would rather choose, no, I will stay in the darkness and love on my sin. So it is a choice. Your spiritual deadness to God and your aliveness to sin and Satan causes you to love the darkness more than the light, to love holding on to your sin rather than to come into the light and give it up. And if you give up your sin, look at what verse 21 says, if you do that, that means that it has been carried out in God or by God, not by you. Now, we'll get to that in, later in, in the sermon next week. But what's happening here is because you have a love affair with sin, you, by your own quote-unquote free will, you refuse to come to God. That's what's happening. And so by your own choice, you are stiff-arming God and saying, I will not come to you. Why? Because I love my sin. And by implication, I love Satan. And by you just following your thoughts and desires, Ephesians 2 just told us, you were in the stream of Satan's world, and you're just floating in the stream. Nothing seems out of place. Everything seems normal. I look like everyone else, like the rest, right? We just look like the rest. But we are following the prince of the power of the air. We need to be brought from darkness into light, or we will not come. And the coming is done by God. The refusing to come is done by us. Our love for sin is what keeps us from coming to God. All right, let's finish up. Two more verses, we're done. Here's the last question we need to ask. And, and you know, if you know your Bible well, we could have gone to many, many, many more texts. We just don't have time. And so the last question we're going to ask with two more texts is, how does total depravity relate to the gospel? How does total depravity relate to the gospel? Here's Colossians 2, 13 to 14. Paul, the same writer to Romans and Ephesus, also wrote to the church at Colossae. And in chapter 2, he says to these Colossians, you were dead in your trespasses. 
You too, Colossians, all of you were dead. In what? In your sins. Trespasses against God. You were dead. And the uncircumcision of your flesh. Okay, so that, that is an interesting phrase there. And what that means is the old covenant people of God were to have circumcision as the sign of being in that covenant. However, what's flushed out in Galatians, which we don't have time to do right now, is that the removal of the flesh, which was circumcision, was a picture of the inward change of heart. And so God's people in the new covenant are those who've had their hearts changed. The old covenant promises of a new covenant is that everyone in this new covenant will know me. Every one of them. If you're in the new covenant, you know God. And that knowing God also promised in the old covenant means that you will have a new heart, you will have a new spirit, and you will have God's spirit living in you. There's the grace that Augustine prayed for, the Holy Spirit. And then Ezekiel 36 tells us, you will be caused to walk in God's ways. If you're in the new covenant, you are being energized, enabled, made possible to obey God by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what uncircumcision of your flesh means. If you're uncircumcised, you're dead in your sins. If you're circumcised in heart, you are alive. Your heart of stone has been taken out and you've been given a heart of flesh. You've been given the Holy Spirit and you're able now, by God's help, to obey Him. So what happens? God made alive together with Him. And what does making alive look like? Forgiving us all our trespasses. Now this is beautiful. Notice who makes who alive. Do you make you alive? No. God is the one who has to resurrect the dead, whether physically or spiritually. No other options. Unless God says to you, live, you will not live. You will stay stiff-arming him and you will reject him until you find your way to ultimate damnation by him. And God will not force you one step of the way. Rather, he will let you go your own way. But if God so chooses, he will make you alive in time and space. How? Through the hearing of the gospel, the power of God unto salvation. And when our, our trespasses are forgiven, verse 14 says that it cancels the record of debt. That's what forgiveness means. When you actually forgive someone, you say to them, you no longer owe me anything. If you refuse to forgive someone, you're like, you owe me. And then if you, that, that owingness stays, you become bitter and angry and resentful, and it just increases. So when the person's even name or the thought of them comes into mind, your whole body tenses up, and you're bitter. And Hebrews says, be careful of the root of bitterness. Be careful and, but what God does is he rather cancels the record of wrong. He chooses to remember our sins no more. He removes our sins as far as the east is from the west. How far is that? I don't know. It just keeps going. That's what God does for us in Christ. He makes us alive and he removes the trespass and he refuses to hold the debt against us. I forgive you all your sin debt with its legal demands. The legal demands are justice must be served. You must pay for your sins. But instead, God himself pays for the sins you owe. This is what the cross is all about. Jesus himself pays your sin debt. He says, yeah, you owe God an infinite, forever, unpayable debt, and I'll pay it. I'll pay it on the cross. He sets aside the legal demands which take forever to satisfy that justice. That's what hell's about. And he sets it aside and he nails it to the cross. Last verse. Ephesians 2 says the same thing. Remember, we just did the dead and trespasses. Here's verse 4 right after what we looked at. 
but God. Not, but you, Ephesians. You believe, and so we praise you for your astuteness, for your outstanding faith among the others at Ephesus. No, but God made you alive. You just received life. But God made you alive. But God, being rich in mercy, mercy implies you need mercy. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. So if God's rich in mercy and you get mercy, that means you don't get what you deserve. Instead, you get what you don't deserve. Why? Because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Not by your belief, not by your efforts, not by your works, by grace, unearned, undeserved, demerited favor of God. That's how you're saved. You have only to call out on the mercies of God, and He saves. You don't save yourself. You don't get up from the grave and resurrect yourself. He resurrects you. He calls out to you, live, and you live. And if he chooses to allow you to stay in your sin, to stay in that love affair with the darkness, he has done you no wrong. He has simply let you go your own way. He says to you, have it your way. And he's done you no wrong. This is what Romans 1 24, 26, and 28 teaches. He gave them over, he gave them over, he gave them over to their own desires, to their own passions. But you see, for those whom he has chosen before the foundation of the world, in time and space, he makes alive. He calls to them out of their deadness, live. And then he supplies his own spirit to enable us to keep his commands. This is why we sing songs like, the strength to follow your commands could never come from me. And we sing that loudly and with hands up. And we're like, yes, amen, I agree with that. Because me, I am prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. I'm prone to leave the God I love. And so with Augustine, we can say, yes, God, command whatever you want. But whatever you command, you need to give me the grace to do whatever you command, even if that command is, come to me for salvation. Even if that command is, live, God, we need you to make alive. This is what the Bible teaches, and this is what we must have. And if you are in Christ, you may not have been able to spell that out like I just spelled it out, but it happened to you. And isn't it beautiful that you don't have to be able to precisely say what happened to you to experience it. For most of you, you just knew you were a sinner, you needed a savior, and you came to Jesus for salvation. And all the stuff we just talked about was at play. All of it. And only later did you find out. This is mercy and grace. This is what we need. We need the gift of God in making us alive, and we need Jesus to pay our trespass on the cross.